Charlie Robertson, hello and welcome to the Rave Pod. How are you today, mate? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Brilliant. It's great to have you on. Um, obviously, you're the author of um, The Octopus of Global Control. And um, it's been fantastic going through the book and, and reading the eight tentacles of global control that you list um, throughout the book. Um, today, we're going to go through and discuss military control with you. But, mate, I'd like to just start off with just the basic how you got to, to writing a book like this. As someone that's tried to write a book and failed many times, um, this is really amazing piece of work. And I'd like to, like to get a bit of an insight into how you, you went, got to writing it. Sure. Well, I, um, I, you know, I'd, I'd really like to say that on the morning of September 11th, 2001, I had it all figured out that this was just a big lie, but that's not the case. It took many years after that. I um, was living in Las Vegas and I was working in real estate during the boom, well, during the boom and the bust, but um, from 2003 on. And what we were seeing was this um, insanity of uh, the real estate market fueled by the media. And I went, I had a buddy come up to me. I was getting ready to go on a trip to uh, Thailand. And he said, hey, you should read this book. It's con called Confessions of an Economic Hitman by John Perkins. And I was like, okay, I've never heard of it. Didn't know who he was, uh, but I read it because I had plenty of time. And it changed my life. It really, and part of the reason why it did is because in the book, he's explaining how he worked for a big multinational engineering firm that would um, go approach countries like, in this case, Ecuador, uh, other third world countries, and would put them, you know, propose a deal with them to build a big hydroelectric power plant, like a, like a dam that would generate electricity. And then this electricity would be used to, uh, you know, light the homes of the villagers. And it would be, it would generate enough revenue that they would have extra money coming in and they would be able to pave their roads and they would be able to come into the you know, into the, the modern times. And, and so all this stuff was, was going to happen as, as a result of it. So you get a country uh, that says, sure, that, that sounds good. The, how do we get the money? Well, they had arranged it, uh, loans with the World Bank and the IMF to to fund these multi-billion dollar engineering uh, projects. That money would go not to the country, uh, but it would go straight to the engineering companies that would then build these power plants. Well, the problem is that the the numbers they gave Ecuador about how much revenue it would generate were never accurate. And they weren't meant to be accurate. Uh, they were going to be in default because it wasn't going to produce enough. And then once they were in default, then the IMF and the World Bank would say, you owe us a lot of money and you don't have it. So we're going to need you to do some things to work off this debt. And that would be could be a variety of things, all bad for Ecuador, but it might be privatizing their lumber industry or fishing industry, or it could be that you'd have to allow the United States to build a military base there, or you'd have to vote their way, uh, the United States's way, um, and the next UN resolution or something, something dangerous like that. And so what I was seeing was as I'm reading this book, I'm understanding how on a national, multinational level, they're enslaving whole countries through debt. And then I'm living in Las Vegas, watching this crazy housing market and seeing that they're making 
their debt, the banks are making their uh, mortgages available to people that are the equivalent of Ecuador. They don't have the financial capacity to pay these loans back, and but everything's going to be great because your house is going up. It's going to be worth 20% more in a year, and isn't this great? And don't worry about that. Well, it's never going to last forever. The bubble popped. When the bubble pops, then the banks that own those mortgages take back the tangible assets, which are those houses. So they've they've loaned out money. They've loaned out money that they borrowed from the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve created this money out of thin air. They've given it to people at interest that can't pay it back. Once that pops, then they take back the physical houses. So they're trading imaginary money for tangible houses and screwing a huge portion of the population at the same time. So as I'm reading the book and seeing the global version, I'm at the same time living it on a smaller scale in Las Vegas. And I'm watching it, um, once it pops, I'm watching everybody get affected by this. I mean, I remember we were, you know, you'd have a guy come in that wanted to buy a house and you'd ask him what he did for a living and he picked oranges or apples or something and he made $8 an hour. And this and there's, this house was never, you know, she had no business being able to buy it. But the lender said, you qualify, we'll loan you the money for it. So this guy's going, well, if it's good enough, you know, if they're willing to give me the money, then I should, I guess that means I am qualified for it. Well, there were a lot of tra traps put in there, much like the IMF and World Bank did. There were loan um, uh, stipulations that were like, you know, uh, adjustable rate loans. And they'd say, well, if the rate goes up, basically, then... Basically multinational loan sharks in a yeah. way. Like, for sure. You know, that's that's what... Loan yeah and so 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 i'm i'm lit i'm you know I'm, I'm reading this book i'm living this life that i'm seeing it on a smaller scale and i'm understanding now that this isn't accidental that it's a game that it that it is it is a loan to own mentality um that the banks have that the the big imf and world banks have um I, imf being the international monetary fund it, these are all big time controlled globalist syndicates that manage pools of money that loan them out to countries in exchange for a variety of reasons. And, uh, and so, so I'm, I'm living this and I'm, I'm thinking, Holy shit, you know, I'm, I'm involved in this and I don't even, and I didn't even know it. You know, I didn't know how I no, And I wasn't like the loan originator. I wasn't out there giving people loans or doing anything like that. I'm just trying to sell houses. And people were coming to me and I was like, well, you know, I'm selling houses. You're a customer. Let's sell you a house. Not understanding how how it was going to be a couple years from then that, that these same people that I was selling houses to were going to lose them. And myself included, I lost two houses during this this whole thing. My own fault. You know, I was drinking the Kool-Aid, man. I was buying into it. It was making sense to me. And so you, know, you go through this and you have it impact you and 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 you vow to to never get caught up in it again and so um you know that book that confessions of an economic hitman you know it just changed my life because it it opened up the the playbook to me so i could understand how this was happening wh why it was happening and what was going to be the end result of it and you know and and, and i i want to give john perkins credit for because after he went through this for you know years and years of working in this job he he's he changed his ways he set about to really work with some of these indigenous tribes to to uh improve their quality of living 
to sort of atone for his sins. And then he's been very vocal. He sold millions of copies of this book, um, blowing the whistle on on the way this uh, government structure works. So it would to me that was uh, that was the light bulb moment for me that sort of woke me up to uh, um, to the scam that they're that the banks are running on us. Yeah, and it's a massive light bulb, uh, isn't it? And I think anyone that has worked in a space, and I can relate to a space that you sort of become disenchanted with, um, where yeah. uh, maybe the ethics get put to the side for the sake of making money. Um, I feel like once you, if you ever come out of that, which so many people don't, and so many people spend their lives in that system of churning through um, financial jobs or whatever else, um, yeah, I think it can be really enlightening to come to the other side and realize that, yeah, there is other opportunities out there. And obviously with you, there's so many quotes in this book. I think you've you've got over interviewed over 500 different people um, yeah. throughout the whole, uh, not interviewed, I've got quotes from 500 different sources, Yeah, um, which really makes up such a interesting book to go through and sort of pull apart. Thanks. Yeah, the quotes, the quotes were, were, fundamental to it because it, it was so important to hear other people's words about uh, particular events, things like, uh, you know, the, the, the Rockefellers and Rothschilds and Clintons and Bushes talking about, you know, the, their version of, of, of how they see the world. And, and then also George Carlin and Bill Hicks and Joe Rogan and guys like that, that have, um, a different take on it, you know, a more humorous, or they can sort of point out the uh, hypocrisy of it all. And, uh, you know, there, so it's important. I, I felt like it was important to hear all of those voices and that people that were, um, you know, trying to, to get an understanding of a particular event, I think it was, it would be interesting for them to know what um, John Rockefeller said about a particular thing or how David Rockefeller is talking in his autobiography about being accused of being a globalist wanting a one world government and then saying, if those are the accusations, I stand behind them and I'm proud of it. And you go, holy shit, I can't believe that he confessed to being, you know, to wanting this one world government. Like I, I did, I, everyone else just kind of rolled their eyes and said, uh, that's just, you know, you're being a conspiracy theorist. No, not. He said it. It's in his autobiography, unless he was Charles Barkley and got misquoted in his own autobiography. You know, it's he he he's he's on the record of saying this is what he wants to do. Does that. So for someone that's taking a look at the New World Order and the Rockefellers and Rothschilds and all that stuff and kind of going, oh, give me a break, man. You're like, well, listen, would it change your mind if you heard David Rockefeller himself say this is what I'm all about, and this is what we're working on doing. Would that change? Would you think now that maybe there's something more to it? And it's not just me, some lunatic saying, "Hey, I thought I heard that," but rather somebody that is um, on the record saying it. Would it change how you feel about that? And some people say, "Well, yeah, it would." I mean, I didn't. I thought that was all just conspiracy theories. Like, well, not all of it is. No, some of this is. Some of this is a plan, and mm. uh, and some of these people don't have a problem telling you what the plan is. They're very vocal about it. some hide it, some don't. Some come right out and say, this is what we're doing. And you can listen to the big new Brzezinski and you can listen to George Soros and you can listen to the Rockefellers and George H.W. Bush and all of these, Obama, Clinton, they will all tell you, they are all on the record of saying, we are working towards a new world order. Tony Blair, 
everyone. I mean, this the, the list is massive of these people. And you go, well, that's just, you guys are just conspiracy theorists. Okay, maybe we are. But it doesn't change the fact that all these people are on record pushing for it and talking about it. Like, maybe we should listen to them. Maybe, they, maybe they're telling us what the plan is. And we should, you know, instead of being so resistant to it, we should just kind of say, well... Tell me more about, you know, I want to hear more about what these guys are saying they have in store for us because it doesn't sound very good. And, you know, spoiler alert, it's not. And that plan uh, is clearly laid out in your book and it goes into so many different sort of uh, segments of the plan and how um, how we're all impacted by it. One of the big things I thought with this book and a lot of um, issues I have with uh, some books and, and not yours uh, is is whether you were going to sit on the fence and not really dive into some of these topics full bore and, and really go after some of these topics. It must be quite concerning and scary at times because some of these things that you're, you're discussing are, are very serious in nature. Were there times when you had to pull back and say, oh, my gosh, I can't put this in. It's just too much. Yeah, there were, t- yeah, there were some aspects of it that I was – uncomfortable writing about but then i realized that because i was uncomfortable that was exactly the reason why i had to write about it because there was a reason that i was being resistant and i had to check myself to see like is this programming that that is that that i'm reverting back to that saying don't talk about this don't you know don't go down that path that's a dark path because you know something like the uh, child trafficking and using uh, uh, honey traps and brownstone operations to ensnare politicians and heads of corporations to get themselves caught on film with an underage person, boy, girl, whatever, um, you know, donkey, whatever your thing is, um, to get, get them stuck and then use that to blackmail them and work against them. That's a dark topic. That's not something you really want to go into, but it's essential to understanding the control mechanisms because that's used there. Um, I also was initially hesitant to be critical about Israel, and that is because in the United States, the Israeli lobby is very strong. They'll point out anybody that criticizes Israeli foreign policy is immediately slapped with being uh, anti-Semitic, which is preposterous, but... I understand that's the strategy they use. It's just anybody that anybody. And, and, and so I put a quote in there actually from somebody inside the Israeli uh, government that says, oh, that's a trick we use all the time. If you're in Europe, we call you a Holocaust and you, you know, you, we call you a Holocaust denier. If you're in America, we call you anti-Semitic. That's the trick we use. And it's like, well, yeah, it's very effective. So, you know, I pointed out some, some inconsistencies with the level of involvement that the Israelis have with inside the American government the number of dual U.S. Israeli citizens in, in there. That is a topic that, believe me, is not going to get mentioned on the nightly news. Um, many publishers are going to have a gigantic problem even publishing that, not because it's not true, but because it is true, and they're, un, you know, they're unsure of what the ramifications would be. So, yeah, there are a couple topics that, that I was um, – I was hesitant to to get into, but that made me feel obligated to write about it because my hesitancy was 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 formed over understanding 
the payback and the punishment that you can receive for being for discussing things like that. We've seen a lot of, um, I mean, in Australia, you guys have you've seen the Nicole Kidman's dad, you know, and, and his involvement with things and watching that guy um, come out or, you know, watching, watching people come out and talk about him and then boom, he's gone, you know? So, so you understand that, um, you might just be writing a book and it might be all fun and games, but there are some very serious people that, uh, that, that take this sort of, uh, discussion very seriously and, and, and have, and a lot of people have, have been, you know, killed for it. People to ask me, Hey, have you ever heard of, Danny Casolaro, the uh, the guy that wrote the octopus. I'm like, yeah, I was very much aware of Danny Casolaro, who was 44 when he wrote the book and was murdered for writing a book about the octopus. As I was 44 years old writing a book about the octopus, so yeah, I was very much aware of how these things can go can go. So there there are. Um, there are, you know, yeah, you talk about sitting on the fence. I had to jump off the fence on some of these topics. I had to really point them out there. It's not to say that I'm I'm necessarily right about everything, but um, but yeah, you got to. I, I had to paint the paint a picture, and sometimes that involved uh, getting into some rather dark uh, topics. We've been at war for 17 years now, and nobody can nobody in this country can give you a straight answer on why we're still in Afghanistan. I mean, not from a military strategic standpoint. They they just say, well, they had they did like 9/11. Okay, fine. Why are we still in Iraq? Well, they you know Saddam Hussein and weapons of mass. He's just like, wake up. It's just, mm. This is nonsense. This is this is how the media gets you to um, to to get on board with a war. And one thing I've noticed is that it still matters if the people support a war. I don't know how long that will continue to be the case but the government still feels the need to get the public on board for these wars and what we saw recently in the u.s was this push for war in syria war in syria and 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 it was nice to see that a lot of people sort of stood up and said the war in syria and the gassing you know, assad gassed his own people this is bullshit we're not falling for this we understand that, that these are lies like you guys have got to get a little bit more creative with the play calling you've done he gassed his own people three times in a row. Like everyone's standing up and going, no, this isn't going to work. So there's, it's nice to, you know, I'm a bit optimistic about that, that the, that the, the people have finally started to wake up to this. Uh, but my fear is that the next time around, the next big war, they'll just bypass the opinion of the, of the American people altogether and just say, we're doing it. We're going into this country. It doesn't matter. And, and, and that, those Which I, days feel, are- I feel like they do anyway in, in, many ways and um that sentiment towards just going to war i feel like something i could relate very strongly to your book is is i feel like you you've you believe very strongly that you shouldn't just lead blindly into war obviously and that it's that's what's crippling the american people at the sort of heart of it the expenditure the money that's going to it and and everything behind that that idea. Why do you think uh, that there is such a um, a comfort and a, a drive to go to war? And why do you think the people support that so strongly? Well, the the media is very powerful. You know, I think there's a there's a group that wants war that makes money from war. That's the with the, the fear. 
the bankers make a lot of money. They lend money to both sides. They don't care. Um, that's this has been going on for a hundred years or so, uh, or well, even more than that. But but in terms of the United States and the Federal Reserve and the and that whole thing, that there's uh, wars are big business for the banks. The military industrial complex wants wars as well. And then you have the multimedia companies that are that have been gobbled up and have been consolidated and, and are owned by so like a company like General Electric. But you go, oh, General Electric, they make light bulbs. Well, they do make light bulbs. They also make bombs. And they also own NBC. And NBC is a gigantic news organization. So to them, it's one big, it's not the media separate and then the military industrial terror complex separate and then the bank separate. What people are starting to understand is that they're all part of this one big group. What is good for the banks is good for the military uh, contractors. And the media then fuels this because if you're GE, you're making money on the news coverage of this. You're making money on the the, the bomb making co uh, component of it. You're making money on, on all sorts of different aspects of it. And the what's scary is that they do this. The media bangs the drum for war. At first, it sounds crazy. Then if after just months and months of talking about nothing but war, it starts to not only not become crazy, people start thinking, well, we've got to do it. We've got to do it now. We've got, I mean, look, television's powerful. We get talked into all kinds of stupid things that we, that we don't need and shouldn't want. Um, and, and, we, the, and the lead up to the Iraq war was a prime example of it. They just kept hitting this weapons of mass destruction weapons. I mean, and it was like they had a big meeting, which I'm sure they probably did. And they said, just keep saying weapons of mass destruction. Say it, say it, say it. And it'll eventually fit. This is the, the Adolf Hitler <laughs> tell the big lie over and over again. And people will believe it. Well, to think there's not science and like maths behind the decision making process is, is naive. Because yeah. you look at what Nike's done with Kaepernick and things like that and how purely that decision was made. Not purely, but they would have done the numbers before making that decision. They would have seen that the numbers were in favour of their um, their call to support him and then they would have gone move. As much as they care about what he stands for, I think um, the numbers are behind all of this and they know. Oh, yeah. They know what works <laughs> from the propaganda and the spin cycle. Yeah. So... So the problem that I see is is with a lot of this like war rhetoric and, and the discussion around war and, and what you're bringing up, you, be, you become this person that gets labelled as someone that doesn't support the troops because you're, right. because you're saying that you're anti-war. How, right. does, how does that sort of impact what you're doing? Because clearly if anyone sort of reads what you're doing, you 100% support the troops and you, yeah. it's, it's, we're all about, you know, I've got friends that have passed away in Afghanistan and I'm sure, you know, you, you know, family, you know, or people that have gone to war and things like that. Yeah. Um, it's a tough, it's a tough discussion to get into, isn't it? Because I feel like the American yeah. people, as soon as you question the, the support for the troops, it, it's that religion and um, something else. There are a few sort of no go zones. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's and that's by design. I mean, you know, Dick Cheney and those guys, they know when they're selling this, that um, the strategy was, listen, anybody critical of this we will just tar and feather them as being this once again goes back to the, the Adolf Hitler, Joseph Goebbels thing, which is, you know, any identify anybody that speaks out against this. 
label them as traitors and and claim that they are opening up the society to um they're 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 opening up their society to be hit you know for for um being less than tough on this uh you know on crime or war or whatever it is um so they make you you know if you're they you know if you're against the war then you're against the troops well that's not the case you could be against the war and for the troops the troops are put in an impossible situation you know they're once they get there all this fighting for freedom and democracy goes right out the door because all they're doing is fighting to make sure they come home, make sure their friends come home, make sure they get to see their mother again. That's all they're trying to do. Fuck this war of you know, freedom and everything. You're kicking in doors in Afghanistan and kicking in doors in Iraq and scaring the hell out of these people. And, you know, and you've got your gun. And all you want to do is make sure somebody else doesn't shoot you. They're following orders. They're in this really bad spot where they're told what to do. It's not like they can... You know, it's not like they have any say in the matter. So it's like uh, um, Jesse Ventura said, you know, I love I love my country, just not my government, you know. And so they, they put these kids in, in, in a bad situation with these wars. And then what's worse than that is when they come home, then they try to pretend like there's no problem. When they're going into the, the VA, the Veteran Administration hospitals that are underfunded, filled with cockroaches and rats, and these kids are coming back with scrambled brains from PTSD because the bombs have been going off, and then they try and take, then they say, well, you can't own a firearm when you come back because you're unstable. Well, of course you're unstable. I've been in a war zone for the last, you know, four years on your behalf, on behalf of the government, and then the government's going to take your guns when you come back. And it's, that's yeah, that's, that's yeah, that's one of the most disgusting parts. I mean, you've you got a lot of big numbers in the book, um, like military expenditure numbers and things like that. Do you have any off, off the top of your head? Um, uh, this is I'm just putting you on the spot here. Uh, any numbers relating to what sort of money goes to after-war care for the soldiers? Yeah, there. To- it's it's. I mean, well, you have to first remember that when this war was sold to us, the uh, Afghanistan war, Donald Rumsfeld said it would cost about. Fifty billion dollars. Yeah. Fifty billion. Yeah. Fifty billion. Yeah. And and yeah. The, I think the calculations when you factor in aftercare and everything is somewhere around seven trillion now. For, mm. So so the numbers are out of control. I don't know. I don't know off the top of my head exactly what the the percentage was or the actual dollar figure that was spent on the the care coming home, but it was you know a fraction of a percent, and it, it's really. You know, it's it's a double whammy because these guys come back and or they go, you know, three tours, four tours, same, you know, Afghanistan, then Iraq, then back to Afghanistan and Iraq. They come back and, you know, I, I'm not saying that they should be celebrated as heroes because I don't think that the war, that war is heroic, but they shouldn't be discarded. They shouldn't be stuffed in a VA hospital that's underfunded. They certainly when they come back physically out of shape with legs blown off, they should be taken care of. I mean, but what happens is that the U S has done things like put a stipend on, Hey, if you want to sign up and go again for a fourth tour, um, sign up and we'll, we'll, we'll pay you. We'll give you a, a signing bonus of like $20,000. And so people would sign up for it, go to Afghanistan, but then they would be found, you know, in a position where they weren't, um, fit for combat because they'd been there a couple times. So maybe they had to just sort of take a remedial job. Well, then the army was clawing back that signing bonus. They gave them saying, well, since you can't fight, we want that money back. And they're like, the money's been spent. Like my family back home is like buying, you know, 
clothes and diapers and things like that. Now you want that 20,000 back. It's been spent. And so then like, then when they come out of the army, then they get in a lien put on them by the bank, by the, by the government wanting that money back. It's, it's, it's crazy. So like, I can't believe that's just a bad advertisement for trying to start more wars and you want people to sign up. The United States military spends a billion dollars a year on advertising. On that's, advertising. On it's, advertising. It's and sick, it's, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's not something you want to do, so they have to convince you to do it. It's disgusting, and they all went over to the, you know, and unfortunately they went to the Iraq and Afghanistan war, and then they come, come back to the GFC happening where houses are getting repossessed. So they go yeah. away to try and make money for their families and uh, try and set themselves up because most, you know, majority, 99.9% of these people are just, I believe, patriots or trying to yeah. do the best thing for their country and, oh, of and course. um and uh, i've got uh, but you know, the, the 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 guys that go back the guys that come out of the out of the service and then go to work for private military contractors that's a different story those guys are there because they're star. they're making 125 grand a year to go back to afghanistan and those guys like it completely yeah, and they like different the yeah 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 definitely um and then you get to the advertising, and I did read that uh, those numbers in your book where where they where the U.S. spends a billion dollars. I mean, where's the push? Is there a push at all to not go to war? Is there an anti? Is there a movement and an advertising push? I mean, I was thinking about that in our own country. Like, as far as people going to the military, really, the biggest stumbling point for our country is is the wages, I think, to be honest. I don't think people are concerned too much about joining the military in Australia. It's not a huge thing that happens. Right. But I just think the money's not there and it's easier to make money elsewhere for most people. Yeah. I have a lot of friends in the military. Um, but unfortunately, the conditions just aren't there. And we live in a country with free healthcare, free, um, you know, a, a fairly, yeah. uh, all of that sort of stuff. So, yeah. Um, well, is in there the US, push at all to not for people not to go, and what would that be met with? Like a campaign to say, okay, an advertising campaign where you know you've got billionaires saying, look, don't, don't go, don't sign up to the military, um, do this instead, or yeah, that sounds I mean, ludicrous, but <laughs> no, it sounds sane. It sounds like yeah, a sane know, and rational, <laughs> which means that it sounds crazy. Yeah. But it, 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 there's there's not a campaign like that, not currently, not that I know of. Um, there is God. If you came out with that in the United States right now, people would like just like you said, they would just say you're anti-war, you're anti-America, you want bad things to happen here. I mean, you, you're what's happening right now in the United States is they've sent troops to the border of Mexico. And people are losing their minds. You know, they say, well, you can't have troops on the border of Mexico. Well, look, I don't know how you want to solve this problem. But the reality of the situation is, actually, if there was any place to put the military, it would be on our own border. If there's one place where they shouldn't be, it's at the 800 military bases that are outside of the United States. I'm not saying that they should put the military no. on, on the border, mean, but, but it's just like... It's like they, that is probably a better use of the military than being in still being in South Korea and Germany and Afghanistan and Iraq and all these places. All these places like once the United States goes in, they're never leaving. They're just not leaving. And anyone that thinks that well, no matter what they say, and I'm an American, I take no pride in saying this. But when America says we're going to put a base there to defend you and then we're going to leave, don't believe them. They're not leaving. They didn't they didn't put all these bases there to abandon them. You know, so we we spread this this war mentality 
in the NFL, the the you know our football league for a big month. Uh, straight. There is a campaign where the the NFL and the military do this what they call salute to service, and they've yeah. got all the guys wearing these you know sort of special edition uh, sort of military looking jackets, or says Patriots or the Broncos or whoever your your team is, and all that. That's not the NFL doing that out of the kindness of their heart or because they're really supporting the troops. That's because the, that's because the military pays them hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to do that because it's an ad campaign. And during the commercials for that, they run, they run uh, commercials for the Marines and things like that. And they have done, they have figured out that one of the ways to, to get people to join up is to make it look like a video game. And so the commercials look the same for the the U.S. Marines as it does for the new Call of Duty video game. And even to the point where the Army has created their own video game. And, uh, you know, and so, so they've, turned the, they've ter- turned this into recruiting younger people by saying, not the patriotism aspect of it, but isn't this cool? It's just like the video games you've been playing your whole life, except this is real. You get to kick in the doors and really shoot people. So. The NFL is a, a scary one. Um, yeah, it's yeah, it's uh, it's a whole nother um, sort of topic of conversation. For and sure. so, obviously, we're uh, I should have mentioned at the start, but um, obviously, we're discussing um, one of the eight tentacles um, of the octopus in your book, so military control. So that's what we're starting with, which. Is a huge one, and that's why I sort of I got stuck on it myself, and I just spent so much time going over and over different parts of your book. And one big uh, thing out here is sort of an ally of the US. Um, I wrestled with, and a lot of the Australian public went to the voting booths to sort of um, push their sort of disagreement with was uh, following America into the Iraq War. So at the time, we basically had a uh, Prime Minister, John Howard, who actually did some great things for the country. You might have seen his speech where it mirrors the Canadian's president. I think it's the yeah, Canadian. It's, it, it is, and, it, it, and I put that in the book, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, um, so John Howard, we followed into war, and then the next Prime Minister came in, and, and whether he was, for whatever reason, he was against the war. So... Uh, that was a big sort of sticking point. And then since then, I feel like Australia's sentiment as far as following the US into war has changed and people are less, um, uh, they're less sort of committed to following a prime minister that supports America in those sort of endeavours so much because we've good. seen the toll it takes. Yeah, good. I'm glad. You guys shouldn't. You shouldn't follow the United States into these pointless wars. We shouldn't be involved in these pointless wars as well. And I feel like America puts a lot of pressure on their allies, like, you know, overt well, the time, pressure, like you, you need to join us, uh, you know. <laughs> so at the time you had one, you had George Bush in as president, um, yeah. who you've got some hilarious, uh, well, I mean, considering the context, it's not hilarious, but pretty funny quotes yeah. from him. Yeah. Um, one of the ones that stands out and goes back to uh, what we were talking about with the fear and the attacking America's religion is this quote about people hating U.S. freedoms, religion, yeah. and ability to vote, which yeah. you look back on it now and you go, how did people eat that up? And how did people believe that people in Iraq and Afghanistan in their homes, living their lives, gave a shit about any of that? Like, how did we believe that? But I remember hearing that and thinking... 
you know, just as someone naive and sitting there going, they do, they must hate our freedoms. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Or hate yeah. our life stuff. But they don't. Yeah. They, 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 it's clear they don't. And it's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think I, I think I remember what I put that. The, I think my response was they don't give a flying fuck about our freedoms. They've got their own problems to worry about. You know, he talks about how like um, they hate us for our freedoms. They, they hate us. First of all, they didn't hate us at all until we started dropping bombs on them and invading them and killing their families. Then after 15 years or 17 years now of, of, of war, now I'm sure they hate us. Not for our freedoms, but because we're in there killing them and their family and destroying their country. But early on, it was they, you know, they hate us for our freedoms. They don't, they're not thinking about us at all. Don't flatter mm. yourself. They're not worried mm. about our freedoms. They're worried about eating. They're worried about being safe in their own country. They don't give a shit. They don't have 500 channels of television and, the, you know, they're not watching the prices right and, and and swearing they're gonna go blow us up because they find us you know our way of life to be disrespectful they're working working on trying to keep their own shit together and keep them themselves fed and, and and a roof over their head and all these crazy things so it was just it was nuts another thing that George Bush said and I didn't put it in the book but he said after 911 you know we should all just go shopping we're like, what? Like, I mean, he said a lot of crazy things. But when we heard that, where everyone was like, that's how we support the United States by going to the mall and going shopping and buying things? Like, what's going on here? You know, but, that, but people heard that and they're like, yeah, man, America first. America, <laughs> yeah, let's go shop. And like, wait a second. First, I mean, first of all, you're buying, all the stuff you're buying is from China. So let's not even, yeah, you're not even really supporting yeah. America, but, but like, right. this is how we're supporting it. And, you know, and so they twist that in the, in the media and make it so that, you know, they make it sort of one, one you know, if you're not completely on board with the United States' foreign policy, then you're against us. And he even said that you're either with the terrorists or you're against us. Well, no, that's not actually the only option. I'm not. I'm I'm against unconstitutional and bullshit wars in countries that haven't done anything to us. And the United States has a has a long history of getting involved in fights and and then and then painting a picture to the public back home that they were dragged into these wars against their will and uh, under humanitarian causes. So anytime somebody hears that we're in there for humanitarian, replace humanitarian with globalism. Because that's what it's about. It's not about protecting people. If they gave a shit about protecting people, they wouldn't be dropping bombs on them. They don't. It's not about humanitarian. You're hitting sewer treatment plants and hospitals and electric electrical plants and, and, and all these facilities. And you're going, oh, it's a humanitarian crisis. Of course it is. They don't have clean water because you bomb the crap out of it. You know. I mean, well, we got to help these people in Libya. Let's help them by not bombing them first. That seems like like I don't know, logical. But but in the early two thousands. If you were to question that, you would get you would get the Bill um, the Bill Maher treatment, which is you would lose your television show, or Phil Donahue, you lose your television show, or if you're the Dixie Chicks and you said this, you know, this president is out of his mind, he's crazy, you would lose your career. So um, people were taught pretty early on that if they stood up and questioned it, that they would be uh, painted as 
soft on terrorism, which is hilarious and fake, mm. uh, and you would be unpatriotic. And by being unpatriotic, then that means that you want something bad to happen to the troops. And my brother-in-law has got somebody, you know, is in is in Afghanistan. How dare you criticize this war? And it's like, wait a second, wait a second. Not to mention, you have stupid people making that argument as well. So you have a bunch of stupid people arguing with each other about the war. And you and one person raises their hand and says, "Why are we even in this war?" And everyone looks at him like he's crazy. You know, mm. but but which is, but it which was, is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But you know, credit to you guys in Australia for for not just blindly these days joining the United States. They'll get you into a lot of trouble. You know, it's, it's stuff that's uh, against your not in your best interest. We have our downfalls, definitely. And we, like a lot of the Western world, follow the US's lead, which is why we're so interested in what's happening with the US, because a lot of our culture, a lot of what we do is predetermined and sort of follows what the US does. A lot of things um, that you mentioned there sort of, and I don't want to jump around too much. uh, and And I would like to get, I'd like to really get, to the bottom of like what has happened in the last 20 years and especially with um, the Iraq and Afghan war. Um, One of the things that really stood out to me is sort of the atrocities that um, obviously the Bush administration just went blindly into. And it's blatant, like it's fairly blatant a lot of this is war crimes, right? Like if you looked at it from another perspective, when has there been a time when someone like Bush or Cheney or whatever else has been tried for this? Like when has there been a US politician that has been tried? And how would they be tried? Like, obviously, with Saddam, right, he was tried by an Iraqi court in the end, which was an American court, right? He yeah. was yeah. pretty much. So he was tried yeah. and hung in an Iraqi court. So for a US president, right? So if we're going to go back to the Bush era, and this is what I think a lot of people were hoping Obama would do, uh-huh. um, start going back in time and looking at, you know, or start, you know, start, we would have hoped that there was presidents after Bush that would have started putting a spotlight on what previous presidents did, right? Like the gross yeah. atrocities we're talking, like wars. Like yeah. where, um, is there any way that these, these guys can be accountable? God, I mean, it hasn't happened. Yes. There is a way they can be held accountable, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, I remember when Obama was was became president, and like you said, everyone was like, "Yeah, let's go get Bush." And then he, yeah. you know, he came out and he says, "Well, we don't want to look back. You know, we want this country to move forward." No, no, no. We want the country to look back. The people are are totally fine with us looking back for a while on this because it should be. But that's what you get when you get these these candidates that uh, you know the red team versus blue team, and this guy's going to go after that guy. And then what you what a lot of people don't realize is that they're all playing golf with each other after this. This is political theater. This is this is one big team. They're not. It's not this team versus that team. You've got Michelle Obama, you know, with. George W. Bush a couple weeks ago saying, oh, you know, we love George. He's the great. He's my favorite. He's so funny and everything. No, he's a war criminal. And so is your husband. And it's not funny to us that you guys are all hanging out. It's not funny that that nothing has been done about this. It's not funny that that Dick Cheney will never pay for his crimes and that, um, you know, John Bolton, who is a maniac war hawk during the Bush administration, is now in the same position with the Trump administration. Like, why are we recycling these psychopaths? Why don't we get them all out? And I think the reason is that 
you know, they're all on the same team and they don't get you don't get to this position of high political power without being allowed to get there. And they're allowed to get there because they're compromised in some way. With Bush, obviously, it wasn't hard, hard to compromise him. But all these guys are controlled in some way. Um, the, you know, the, the Clintons are controlled, but also control others because they have the dirt on them. And so what we what I've found over the last 10 years is that the operational aspects of what they call brownstone operations, where they entrap uh, politicians and f- prominent business people in situations where they're through you know, dirt, like, yeah, through yeah through dirt exactly. Um, a great example of that in the UK was when they when the UK you know when they were they were talking about joining the European Union to be the EU and uh Ted Heath was giving away all of the fishing rights of the UK uh as a part of the membership and everyone's going this is a really crappy deal for us why are we getting in here why are we giving away all our fishing rights well we're, you're giving away your fishing rights because Ted Heath was a pedophile and the German government had run brownstoning operations and had him on had him had him on film with kids, maybe even killing them. And so when it comes time to negotiate these deals, the U- the people of the UK are like, wow, we're getting screwed on this deal. Yeah, because your prime minister is totally and utterly compromised, as were most of the people, you know, during that era that came out of the Thatcher uh, cabinet and, and Ted Heath. And, and oh, you know, there's a list of them. Now, as they die off, it becomes quite obvious. But it's like looking back on it now, it's like, well, that's why you're getting these bad deals. And so who's going to go to prison in the United States for starting all these wars? Nobody. Julian Assange. Julian, Julian Assange is going to go to prison in the United States for for all of these wars. So it's turned it, the whole world is turned upside down with this. And uh, so, the people that are doing good work are going to be punished and the people that are doing bad work are going to skate and it's reprehensible. Yeah, and I can buy the dirt comments and I can buy the uh I understand the dirt comments because you look at the most recent obviously with the Trump campaign and yeah. um how much of his dirt did not come up in any of the campaign, like right. court court documents of what his yeah. wife said in with him raping her and things like right, that. Right, 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 right. Um, just didn't. They want to hold on to. They want to hold and on to then, some of that juicy stuff for for and later. Same, and same with what you mentioned with Bush and the um, the link with his grandfather and funding the the Nazis and Hitler yeah. and he's great. Well, it would have been his great grandfather, right? Uh, yeah, well, it, for George W. Bush, it would have been his grandfather. So it was George H. W. Bush's dad, Prescott Bush, who was with union banking and was busted for working with the Nazis. Literally, like, had all of their assets taken because they were they were <laughs> working with the Nazis. I mean, but, so uh, I mean, this this dirt is obviously everywhere, and it's just what they choose to release. But I think, yeah. do you believe in like with the the amount of media and the amount of availability we have with information. Do you feel like that dirt's going to come out more freely now and they're going to be finding it harder to get away from it? Or do you think there's going to be just too much misinformation that we're not going to know the dirt from the mud? Like it's just going to be all. That's a pot that, yeah, that's a possibility that there's just so much junk out there. It's hard to tell what's true and what's not true. What's interesting with Trump is that they came out during the campaign and and I must I must say I must just state this to begin with 
I'm not a fan of Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. I don't like either of them. I don't I don't like yeah, the whole either. two party system. So I'm not on one team or the other. But they tried to shame Donald Trump and what they realized that you can't shame somebody that has no shame. You know, they brought exactly. up these these horrible things about him, the 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 audio tapes of him on the bus talking about grabbing by the pussy. All it, all it did is make his numbers go up. Yeah, <laughs> because like any normal person would be like, oh god, they they got me, they got me. But he's <laughs> like, funny, yeah. he's like, it's free publicity, and and it's turned into like you know like fake professional wrestling where it's just one maniac versus another maniac, and the winner is whoever can out crazy the other one, you know. And and you've got I, Hillary Clinton that ran for president, and by all accounts is a totally compromised and reprehensible human being. But all she had to do was act like a semi-normal person, and she would have won the election. But she couldn't do it. She just couldn't do it. She couldn't help herself. She had to go out and start talking about deplorables, and she had to start like falling down all over the place, and she had to uh, to be her her you know her you know her she just had she had to be herself and it cost her because how bad of a candidate do you have to be to lose to donald trump i mean it's almost impossible to lose but she found a way to do it and so here we are i think in the united states now one good thing that's come from all of this is that people are starting to wake up to the reality that elections are just theater you know it's just it's just it's just fakeness because when you get two candidates like those, it's, all the those, it's yeah, it's who cares? We're screwed. The, by, you know, this guy's terrible. That she's terrible. We're, we're we're screwed no matter who we pick. The only thing is with Hillary uh, versus Trump that I can think of as a as a differentiator is from a pure perception level and what they um, inspire. I feel like Trump inspires hate towards minorities. Um, whether you, whether you, um, whether you believe it or believe that Hillary believes that behind closed doors and Hillary is a fucking horrible person behind closed doors and she does all this stuff. Trump's comments to the black, to the, to the, like just the bait, just the standard people that aren't looking too deep into this breeds hate. Yeah. Do you believe that? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think you he's he, he doesn't he doesn't strike me as being a very nice guy. I don't I don't I know people are saying, well, he's he's gonna save he's come in, he's gonna save the people, he's working with Q and they're gonna save everyone. It's like I haven't seen any examples of Donald Trump going out of his way to help anybody over 30 years. I see him I just either. as a as a as sort of an egomaniac, uh, so I don't know that I'm sitting around waiting for him to save the world. I do, yeah, I do agree with you. I think that his his comments and the way he sort of acts is uh, he's a he's a rich white guy, you know, and he acts like a rich white guy, and, and I don't think there's much sympathy. Clinton has found a way to sort of play this. Hey, I'm I'm of the people, but but it kind of wore out after a while of people hearing enough things, digging into her and realizing you're, you're really not of the people. And and I am all for a female president. Just oh, not definitely. her. You know? Just not, not her. I, I, I didn't, I didn't yeah. see anything about her that was, that was um, very endearing or, or, or genuine. And I think a lot of people got that. It, at least with Trump, there's one thing I will say about Trump. He's full of shit, but like he at least I think he believes it. You know, he, I think he, he, he believes com- it. He he comes across and he just can't help himself and like, give himself credit. You know, on Thanksgiving, what are you thankful for? Well, I'm thankful for for me and for all my hard work. Like, ugh, 
of course you said that. Why would I? Why would we be shocked that you're not saying it? So it's done a, a lot of damage to our already damaged reputation around the world that we have this guy who's sort of like a bull in a china shop. He's just unpredictable and crazy and liable to say anything. And um, as much as I'm embarrassed by him as a representative of this country, he's he's probably no worse than the others that are pretending to be nice and meanwhile strong arming countries into to doing things they don't want to do or, or starting wars and he'll be forced to start more wars too because he's he's compromised like they all are and so i'm not holding out any hope that he's going to come to the rescue and save everyone the whole system is sort of set up in a way that doesn't really allow for that to to happen we saw that when ron paul ran for for president and there would be like a poll you know, on TV, the nightly rankings of where everyone is, according to some poll. And it would be like, number one, Jeb Bush, number two, uh, you know, whatever the list was, number four would be Ron Paul, but it would be missing. And then it would be number five, whoever that person is. And you're like, yeah. hey, what about number four? What about Ron yeah. Paul? So they would like pretend like he didn't even exist. So we saw how like, uh, you know, and you, we saw how the media is so involved in this. And you'll You've gotten to the the military component of the book. I make an argument towards the end that I think maybe the media is even more dangerous than the military because they they kick off all these wars and they they set the tone and and, and the attitude in, in the country and it can be very dangerous and and of course they use the media um, first to get the to get the wars started. Of course, the military is going to have tangible, actual casualties and murder on their hands, so they're obviously dangerous. But the media component is so dangerous too because they just have uh, they have the ability to try and change the way people think about them, like pr literally program people into thinking one way. And the people don't even realize that they're where they're getting that from. They're getting it from the media, and we're all guilty of that on some level. I mean, we all get 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 influenced and but the the media here i don't know how it is in australia but the media here in the united states is um is embarrassing they're embarrassing in their just blatant push for uh for war it's nothing like the u.s here but it's trying very hard to be mm. it's putting in a lot of work to try to be like <laughs> the u.s to right. be honest and um it's yeah, we, we, we've gone through a very strange political climate out here where we've had prime ministers out throw other prime ministers. So you'll have a prime minister in charge, right? And then halfway through their term, the, the, the party starts hating the guy who's leading and they just mm. kick him out. So they just vote <laughs> and kick him out, right? So that, that's been happening nonstop. So it's, and then I wonder whether that's just, they've used him up and they just move on. But um. Yeah, the media out here is is an interesting one. And, and when I think of the media, I can't help but um, sort of think of the two Australians, sort of the Packers and the Murdochs. So obviously mm -hmm. with Rupert Murdoch running Fox in the US and his involvement um, yeah. and all of his other holdings um, right. and all of his involvement in this. And I, with the media, I feel like they're sort of like the police in regards to, I reckon they get fed information from people that are above them. They oh, yeah. get juicy stuff and then they have to run with it. And I mm -hmm. feel like if they take any sort of proactive sort of way of looking into stuff, um, I feel it's too risky for them. So they just play the line that they get fed. Yeah, uh, it's, it's hard to work out. I, I, I agree with you, though. Yeah. And the Packer, I mean, I mean, no, I remember 
hearing about um, you know the the dad because of his penchant for going to Vegas oh, and blowing tonight. tons and yes. tons of tons of money in the casinos and everybody knew about him. He was the yeah. biggest whale. You know they wanted him to and come his in. son and his and son, his son is and his son is is going to blow all the money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so they're pretty yeah, it's young. been a while. It's been a while since I've been. I was in Australia, like in the in the mid '80s. It was a long time ago, but I uh, I enjoyed it. But I also was too young to be involved in all the politics and everything. I I certainly uh, I certainly loved my time there. I actually went to Alice Springs. I got a, a chance a chance oh, wow. to to see what it's like to live in a city that has six trillion flies everywhere <laughs> yeah. It was really, yeah it was really creepy we had like a layover and we went out and explored and i was like holy shit what is going on with the flies here and then i saw in all the gift shops the t-shirts that had like said alice springs had flies all over it and i was like oh we gotta get one of those yeah it's interesting i've never been to alice springs but um i don't i, I you're not missing much from my estimate yeah. from my my brief journey there it didn't look like uh, there was a whole lot going on i was very actually we were close enough to a park and I could yeah. see a bunch of the Aborigines hanging out in the park and just kind yeah. of drinking and everything. And it reminded me of what has happened in the United States to the native Americans there. And, and it made me really sad, you know, to see that because you could tell it was like hopelessness, you know, and it For was all uh, of the positivity that I feel like we are steps we are making forward in Australia. The reconciliation with our indigenous people is something that we're a long way behind. Um, we're trying to make steps, but I feel like we've got a long way to go and we really need to work on that. Uh, well, I, ended, I ended the book, the very last sentence, two sentences in the book uh, is a Aboriginal proverb. Oh, really? Okay. Well, yeah. I'll get to that. I'll get yeah. to that. Um, yeah, I thought it was a good way to uh, to to wrap it up. Like most indigenous people, they tend to have a better handle on reality than we do. Oh, <laughs> Very deep definitely understanding Def of it. And so I was one thing that I was another part that you bring up in this um, first chapter is it's the wars that the U.S. go to into a, a really end up being like a race war where they're only yeah. going after, you know, people of colour. They're not going right. into Russia, so to speak, or parts of mm -hmm. Europe. They're, a lot of the time they're going after people of colour. And clearly this impacted people like Muhammad Ali, who you, you've got that amazing yeah. quote from him yeah, before yeah. he goes to the Vietnam War about yeah. how he, um, you know, 20 million of his people at home or something were getting, you know, not looked yeah. after. How, 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 how do... It's a big question, this one, obviously, but how do yeah. sort of African-Americans and how do they still support going to the armed forces? Is it purely the propaganda behind it to get them in? Is it the situation that they're getting at times put into? Is it? It's, it, it, it I'll tell you what it is. It's not the propaganda. They're not going. I'm, well, look, I'm speaking for the African-American community, which is yeah, kind of which is hilarious, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. but um, but. But I think so. I can't. I, I won't generalize. But I'll say that that for the most part, it's their situation in their community. You know, it's not to say that everybody that joins the military is doing it because they don't have any other options. But it is an option for people that have no options. And um, you'll find communities where it's like, 
you know, Camden, New Jersey, which is just unbelievably poor and dangerous and filled with drugs. And so if you're a black male, 18 years old coming up and you graduate from high school, if you can go to college, great, but you have very limited options. Your choice for jobs is limited. You have the gang issue that could be pulling you in. You have the drug dealing or using issue that could be pulling you in. And then the military comes up and says, listen, we'll take you out of this place that you're in. We'll give you a purpose. We'll pay you. We'll, you know, we'll give you money. We'll get, we'll cover all your expenses and costs and you'll have this new life. And some people get in the military and they take off and things are great for them. And it, it mm. saves their life. Other people get into it and they find out that they've just been put in the front lines in Vietnam, especially, um, you know, if you were somebody with a college, you were in college, you could defer out. If you were not in college, you know, you had to you had to get all Dick Cheney on people and 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 find creative ways to get your deferment. If you weren't able to do that, you were going to Vietnam and you were going in the front lines and you were it was going to take you about one day before you realized the war is bullshit. I'm just trying to come home uh, and not be not be shot. And I don't know how the African-American community really feels about going into the military in the United States and then going overseas to a place like Iraq and killing Iraqis, um, I don't know if they understand the why they're there and what what they're doing, and that they're sort of doing to the Iraqis what has been done to them. You know, you're like most them. people, like most people in the army, like not just African Americans. Yeah, with that no, part, no, 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 like, like most. Yeah, well, you mean for like sure. most people? They don't realize that people in what we're doing over there is exactly what's happening at home. Which brings me to uh, one of the last parts of uh, last parts of the first chapter is, and this is the part. This is I was hook, line, and sinker reading and agreeing and loving every single part. And okay. this is what makes a good book is when you read something and it sort of keeps you up. So you've obviously you're doing something you did, uh, you. a lot. Well I appreciate that. So um, <laughs> is is the gun debate, which is something that is really interesting and really um i find really something that it's so hard to get clarity on and i don't think you've really gone too far one way or the other with it um but one thing i noticed and something that i didn't really consider prior to reading your book is i always thought okay get rid of guns in the u.s they're killing how many seventy thousand people a year or forty thousand it's what a the lot. stats, I don't know, a lot, yeah. okay? So say those stats are doubled, like, or say they're not correct or whatever else, it's still a million, like, it's still so many times uh, the rest of the world. Right. Um, so I think it's, I always just thought, okay, why would you want a gun with your neighbour? And, like, why would you want your neighbours right. to have guns? Why would you want the poor to have guns? And then in your book, I, I got to the point where I thought, oh, my gosh, it's because you're fearful of the government. Yeah, that's yeah, one of the main reasons why the Second Amendment is. Am I right in saying this? Like, you're right. As, that's that's it. It's not that's, that you're fearful of your neighbours, which I thought. Oh, why are you scared of people up north who are doing, you know, loving and whatever, and not killing right. each other? People in Mexico, they're doing, you know, or down south and all that. They're not doing yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um, you only got to get scared of Mexico is when you put up a wall and say they can't come in or whatever right. else. Right. But like. <laughs> right. um, I thought I've always thought, you know, why why does everyone want to be armed? And I've I've been under the impression you might have heard on the one on the other pods is my belief is that 
and it's just a theory is that I feel like they're arming the people for some reason for a coup, for a, um, yeah, maybe. Uh, maybe arming them to start a, some sort of um, internal war. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah for sure. So is it, is it that fear with the guns around your government trying to take control of you? Because you, I know I'm, I'm getting to my point because we had an incident in Australia called the Port Arthur Massacre, right? Yeah. Um, it was where 20 people, maybe 20 plus people got shot. We had right. loose-ish gun laws. A week or two after that, our government, this was maybe 20 years ago, however long ago, our government banned all the guns. Right. destroyed them all, crushed them, um, and got rid of them. You can't buy a gun. If you want a gun, um, you can't buy it. Since then, there's no deaths, there's no violent crimes that are, like, blowing off the charts. We recently right. had a terrorist attack where someone had a knife and they right. killed one person. Right. Um, so... Can you elaborate on, on yeah. the, that, that sort of part of fearing the government and, and yeah. why the gun thing is such a big, big yeah. hard, it's a hard topic to understand. It's, it, it, it is, even for us in the United States where we deal with this. So on a personal note, I don't like guns. Uh, I had a, a gun put to my mom's head when I was a kid when someone was trying to carjack us. I've had friends that have had been impacted by gun violence. I don't like it. I wish we didn't have guns and we didn't have and, and I wish our attacks were only knife related like you guys and I wish it turned out like the way you guys have it and, and, and all that. I would be on board with that a hundred percent. There are a lot of people in the United States, however, that see part of the culture as like guns, American flags, jeans, and religion. you know, that's religion and all that. And that sort of goes together. Well, okay, that you know, that's 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 their deal and 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 I don't have a problem with that. There are a lot of people here that are hunters that want their guns and they say, don't take my guns. I want to go deer hunting. All right. Well that's not really what they're they're trying to do. Um there are there are several instances where the United States government has been caught importing guns and just dropping that literally opening up the sides of railway cars that are parked in the bad part of town and having those, them filled with guns. And people just discover them and they're like, holy shit, look at all these machine guns and taking them. And then they wind up, you know, in that community and they're everyone's shooting each other. So some there's some intentional instances that are being that are happening because of guns. But there has been a push for uh, gun legislation and gun control. And the and it's an argument that's going to continue to go on, because on the one hand, they say, well, we'll take the guns away. Therefore, if there are any guns and there can't be any gun violence. Well, People that are sort of living in this reality here in the United States are going, that's nice. But the problem is criminals don't care. They'll get a gun no matter what. The army doesn't care. They're going to keep their guns and the police aren't giving their, up their guns. So the only people with guns in this scenario of, of gun confiscation and gun restriction would be you'd have the 
military, the police, and the criminals with guns. Those are three groups of people that I don't trust with guns. All the good people, all the massive good people that are like, hey, listen, I'm on board with handing in my gun if it means no gun violence. That's fine. They'll do that. They'll be completely unarmed and they'll be massacred. And so I know people will say, well, it's paranoia. Of course, it sounds paranoid to say that if you get rid of all the guns, then you won't have, um, you know, and then the government will come in and get you. Well, in history, it shows that that's exactly what has happened. The countries that have that have that have given up their their guns have wound up facing uh, massive uh, amounts of murder. Uh, Mao Zedong is notorious for saying, um, you know, we, you know, they you take the weapons before the slaughter. Uh, and after they banned guns in China, 77 million people that were Chinese were murdered by, by his regime. They did it in Germany. They did it in Russia. They did it in Cambodia, Pol Pot. You know, so, so there's, a, there's a long line of, of instances of governments banning guns and then murdering their population. So do I think that'll happen in the United States? <sighs> Probably not like that, but... But it's it's, because everyone's got guns and it makes it really hard to round up the populations um, when when they've got guns. Now, there have been a lot of shootings in the United States, but not all of them are real. A lot of them are fake. A lot of them are false flags. A lot of them are staged. A lot of them are non-events that are passed off to be real. There's enough legitimate shootings that they shouldn't have to go manufacture them. I'm not trying to say that there's no violence here. There's plenty of it. And a lot of it is gun-related. And I wish there weren't guns. But the reality of the situation is we're living in the United States under a government that is that is filled with deception, is not to be trusted at all. And if they say, give up your guns, you know, we'll take care of you. I don't know that at this point we're living with people that you could trust uh, enough to do that. So it's a weird one, though. And, and I was and I'm on, like you said, I'm sort of on the fence on that. I can understand why people would want to be armed. Uh, but I can also understand where people are like, let's just get rid of guns altogether and then we won't have these problems. And I think that if that, if we could do it in a way where nobody really had guns, then that would be fine. But, um, but unfortunately I think that what would happen is that the, the, the good guys would give up their guns. The bad guys would retain them. The government would always continue to hold theirs. And you know, what, what we found was that not only, you know, there's kind of reason to be paranoid when you looked at the bullet purchases that were happening from all these government agencies, you were seeing people like FEMA and the department of Homeland security ordering billions of bullets you know uh, the the social security administration which is the the government agency that makes pe- sure that older people get their checks after you know when they've paid into the system they get their check the social security administration was spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on weapons like why you know mm. what's going on here you know so you start to see all these bullet purchases weapons purchases and it starts to make people paranoid going well listen I don't know about giving up my guns. I might give up my guns when you guys stop buying billions of bullets because I'm a little concerned of why you feel the need that Department of Homeland Security should have six billion bullets. You know, <laughs> I mean, who are you planning to fight? Us? You know, so I think that's where some of the paranoia in the United States comes from as a, as a healthy distrust of their government. Which is what people in Australia and Japan don't understand. Yeah. Which is what I've I've it's sort of like a bit of a light bulb moment for me 
and I'm one of those people. Um, that's what I didn't understand. And, and is, is that deep distrust for your government? And you know what? I would have the same distrust and I would be this and concerned the same way. Something would be some, and a, a point that I would ask in relation to Mao and things like that. And, and the, I mean, the government over there and here are doing things to kill us off anyway. Oh, yeah, for uh, sure. <laughs> as far as like, look at the water in Detroit, look at the foods that they're approving, look at. For sure. Do you know what I mean? They're doing yeah. it. Why? They don't need guns. Like, guns no, are like. No, they don't. Do, they, they don't need guns yes, and bullets. You could, yeah, you could stop someone shooting, but I mean, you go through the, you know, there's other ways to cut off food, um, you know. So I feel like they're, they're using other ways to, to attack the people anyway. Yeah, I agree. No, that's I, that's it's it's the guns are are relatively overt, but yeah, they're spraying us with things uh, in our skies every day. There's what the chemtrails or geoengineering. They're spraying something aluminum and nanoparticulates. This is this is not even debatable. I mean, it's a fact that they're doing that. There's fluoride in our water, like you said, Flint, Michigan. Their their water is practically poisonous. You know, there's the they're killing us every way, every way they can. So, but that's just yet another reason for a lot of Americans to go, well, you might be killing us, but I'm going to keep my gun. And if you come to my door, you know, I might be going, but you're going too. And so there's that sort of mentality. And part of that is, you know, this wild West Americana sort of uh, uh, thing that we've built over, you know, a hundred years of, you know, the Wild West, and we've got our guns, and we love our country, and all that stuff. But that's just, that's just nonsense. That's just, that's just uh, political propaganda at this point. I don't know. I don't know why people are, are, um, you know, so wrapped up in like America. You know, love it or leave it, and wrapping themselves up in the American flag. Like, oh, look, I. I love living in America, but like, let's just be honest. We got some big problems, and we've got some some really poor behavior that we're involved in around the world. And yeah, we've got a lot of countries that that don't like us, and and we uh, and I don't know why we could why we would blame them. But uh... it's funny you mentioned the flag thing um, because Australia as a country, there's issues around our flag and with the national uh, with the um, Aborigines in our country, and. Um, we have a, a, a day called Australia Day, which I guess would be similar to your um, Independence Day, maybe? Or, yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. So um, we've never been a big flag-bearing country, but mm-hmm. on this day, over because we're so in, like, enshrined in the American culture, people start wearing flags and they run around and put their flags up. And, and we're starting to be like that. Which, yeah. And that in turn, it's strange how a flag can promote racism, but it... It, it's now being viewed in our country of people wearing flags on that day almost as racist, which is mm. very strange because of the how they act. So, anyway, that's a that's a whole nother yeah nother yeah. Scary. But um, we we love flags here. For some, I mean, we've got there. Yeah, everybody's got a got a flag up and that to me has always been sort of like propaganda you know it's like what does the flag symbolize you know we, i know what it's supposed to symbolize but unfortunately it's been corrupted and it, and and i'm not uh, well i'm not ready to wave it in 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 blind support of the country until we sort of uh, change our behavior around the world and and I, I i'm you know i mean i say this as an american that i'm not 
I take no pleasure in saying it, but like our behavior around the world has been pretty awful uh, over the last 50 years. And a lot of people have been murdered because of us. And I think it's uh, I think it's fair to discuss it with with people. You know, a lot of people are just blindly into the American culture and America. We're the greatest and all that. And that's pretty obnoxious, to be honest with you, because a lot of people in in the country are, are not like that. They're willing to take a step back and say, well, wait a second, there's some great things about this, but we're doing some pretty bad things uh, as well. And um, and if we're if we're the leader of the free world, then we should be behaving in a way uh, and it, we should be behaving in a much different way if we're going to be the leaders. Because right now, uh, I don't know why other countries would want to be like us. Right. We're imperialistic and bloodthirsty and lie. We lie to everybody and we're sticking our nose in everybody's business. And then we just pretend like, hey, well, listen, you can't you know, if, if Mexico wanted to build a wall or if Mexico, you know, or if China put a military base, you know, right on the Mexican border, we would flip out. But when we do it in the South China Sea and build a military base right next to China, we're and they have a problem with it. We're like, what's your problem? But like, mm. well, the problem is you're putting missiles there, pointing at them. Of course, they have a problem with it. So the the hypocrisy of American foreign policy, I think, has has gotten to the Americans themselves, a lot of them have realized that like this is, you know, we're, our behavior, how we are portrayed around the world is very different from the way we think of ourselves. We think that we're going out there with this great image. And the reality is that our image has been tarnished and we have nobody to blame but ourselves for that. So that's sort of, I feel like that wraps up a big part of the chapter, but I wanted to end with one thing that you, you mentioned briefly and we touched on. Um, so obviously you've got Trump and people are talking about Q and everything else around that. Um, uh, and obviously building a wall, we knew that w- that would incite hate from the Mexican of course. Uh, people. Okay, right. So yeah. now they're saying it's fake, some of the people trying to bomb yeah. uh, on, on the caravan and all this. I understand all that and there could be, yeah. and a lot of it could be staged, but right. clearly it's, well, where, where do you sit with Q and the belief behind all this? Like for me, if I think that Q is, if, if I'm thinking that this Q is our savior, right? Is the savior, right? And he's the one who's going to set mm-hmm. everything straight. Mm-hmm. I just don't see how Trump is the one. Why is he, it just doesn't seem to match up. Uh, I'm a bit lost on how that all fits into place. I, I can't, I can't help you out with that because I'm lost as well, because I don't, oh, yeah. I don't, I don't see, first of all, when people are saying, trust the plan, trust the plan, all that to me, it's like, you have a group of people that are distrustful of everything. Like meaning like people like me, I can't trust the plan. I, you got to give yeah. me the plan. You know, I can't. Yeah. You, you got to lay it out here for me because the trust in I'm I'm done tr- blindly trusting. And if it's the things that they're saying that are going to happen, the sealed indictments, all that stuff sounds great to me. Just do it. Stop that with the trust, the plan, and it's coming and it's coming. And it's hey, yeah, we've why, been here and it's coming for a while. Why, why this? Can, why this mysterious? Why I, I get it. So people don't get arrested because they allegedly yeah. they're highly government officials, whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, I uh, yeah, and I can understand if they said, look, in order to do this the right way, we have to do it. There's a process and that process takes time. Okay. I can get on board with that. I can understand that it's like, there's no sense just trying to do it and grab these people and pull them in and, 
you know, and run them through a trial if you're not, if it's not going to stick. If there's a proper way to do it to make sure that it, the, the the rounding up of these criminals is 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 done effectively and so that it actually sticks, I can buy that. But and I can almost buy that they said, well, you know, we got to wait till the the elections because you know we got to wait for these things to kind of get sorted out and then we'll know how to, pro- to proceed. Yeah, I, I can sort of understand that too, but like, come on already. Like I, I'm, you know, if, the, if you've got 30,000 or 50,000 sealed indictments, let's get this show on the road, man. Let's start mm-hmm. rounding people up and start and start making it happen. Even if it's, you know, even if you're not, like I said, you want to, you want to do it the right way so that everything sticks. But God, in the meantime, like, let's show us something. Uh, just these, this cryptic messages to me sounds, it's just not, it's something I can like, fully embrace and get on board with i like what they're saying i like what they're saying the outcome is going to happen i I want those things to happen but like excuse me if i can't just blindly say oh yeah that's good i believe it everything's gonna cues here to save the day nobody's gonna save us (laughs) you know we gotta we gotta save ourselves if these things happen and and they really round up these people and they put it in jail i think that would be the best sign the best signal to people that all right things might be changing here there's the rule of law what we're fe- what what fa- a lot of people face here in the US and I'm sure it's the same elsewhere is that you see some low level criminal get arrested and they charge him with 10 crimes and they you know and they the guy plea bargains and takes 10 years in prison for some bullshit crime that he shouldn't really like get busted with Sign. Yeah, like marijuana or something like that. Yeah. Meanwhile, the real criminals running the banks and corporations that get uh, busted putting out fake products that wind up killing people, nothing happens to them. And so there's this, there's this like th- this distrust, this like two-tiered system of of policing that makes low-level criminals the priority and fills the prisons with them. Meanwhile, the people that are really causing the problems hide behind corporations or hide behind great attorneys and they never do any time. And so there's like, people start to say like, what's the point? Like I give up, like I, you know, you're going to throw me in jail for 10 years for something stupid. But meanwhile, this guy who's the CEO, who's put out a defective product and you go through their emails and you see that he acknowledges it's defective and he says, bury it, just sell the product in Asia instead. I don't care. That guy gets to collect his bonus. That guy should be, you know, as George Carlin said, nothing's going to change until we start executing some of these fucking bankers. That's what he said, not me. Um, but it's it's true, even in like a symbolic way, like just start rounding them up. Nobody went to prison for the for the mortgage scam, the mortgage no. fraud. There's crime committed all over the place. I saw it with my own eyes. Nobody did mm. prison time for that. So these important things, you know, they sort of slide. And, and that is... Um, you know, that, that's something that I, I think everyone can. Re- I think most most people in most countries can relate to that, that there's a that there's a corruption inside the policing and judicial aspects of society where uh, some people's crimes are dealt with more harshly than than others. And that that's uh, that's frustrating, especially especially for the lower tier socioeconomic people. They're just throwing their hands up going, what do I have to do? And I'm out of- yeah, I can't win here. And the point that the point is. You're not supposed to win. <laughs> They've rigged it so that you're not supposed to win. You're supposed to be at the bottom of the socioeconomic class, and you're supposed to stay there. And the rules have been set up so that you don't succeed. You don't get up above that. And so when black people are saying, man, I feel like the police are just pulling me over because I'm black. They are. 
that's what they're doing. This is not, you're not imagining this. This is, this is what's really happening. And so you'll get into that later on in the, in the book when I get into the private prison industry and how that has been. Um, uh, yeah, I look forward to that. I've yeah. read quite a bit on that before. So, so where to from here, mate, for you? So you, you've obviously written this book. You, this is something you're passionate about. So what's, yeah. what, what, what's, what are you, what's on the horizon for you? I'm, uh, I'll be in Mexico at Anarchapulco the middle of February, 2019. So that's the anarchist convention, which is going to be a lot of fun. It's like anarchy and cryptocurrency. Uh, that's in Acapulco. So Anarchapulco, I'll be speaking there with, uh, Ron Paul, David Icke, Dr. Cynthia McKinney, uh, a bunch of good people, uh, you know, Luke Radowski from We Are Change, um, some some good guys. So uh, we'll be there. I'll be talking. I'm, I have um, contributed to a book with a guy named Jeff Berwick who does the anarch does Anarchapulco, the Anarchast, and also the Dollar Vigilante. And so that book will be coming out uh, during during that, maybe a little bit before that. So uh, I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to do what I can to make myself make people aware of some of the things that I've come across. I, I'm pretty upfront in the book that there will be some aspects of it over time that I will be proven wrong, and I'm fine with that. I acknowledge that it won't all be it won't all be accurate. Being you know, you're going up against the CIA and MI6 and Mossad and all these spy agencies that are great at disinformation. So some things will be wrong, but I'm not going to let that stop me from talking about everything else and trying to 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 do my part because you know like i said when the book the idea for the book came about it was just a simple question of like you've got this information what are you going to do and i just decided well this will be this will be what i do uh i'll yeah. write this thing and by the way you mentioned how you had started and stopped in the book if I had known how much work it was going to be I would have never started on it it's a it's a process and it is it, it is, is and I wrote mine with zero support from my family. Like literally nobody knew I was writing it. Like in the middle of the night, I would sneak out and write a little bit. I feel like I, that's how it has to be. It uh, has to I, be. For me, it I'm had to the, be. I was, yeah, I've been the same. I, I've been writing for a while. I've thrown whole books out. Like uh, and yeah. actually writing with a pen. I've thrown yeah. whole, whole books out <laughs> at times because I haven't. I've read it back over. I've just been disgusted with it. But I've yeah. never really mentioned it to my family because it's something that I'd like to go with a finished product and say, "Hey, that's how I, this rather." That that's how that's how I was. It was one of those things where I I, I didn't know if I was going to finish it, so I didn't say anything. I just was like, "Well, if I don't do it, if I don't get all the way through with it, I'll just I, if I don't tell anyone, then then no one will say, "Hey, man, how's that book coming?" And I, uh, I so I didn't want to have that, so I just kind of kept my mouth shut. My wife found out about the book when um, she got the first copy before I did, she opened a box that came to the house and the mailman had already come. And so I thought I had intercepted everything, but then like federal express came later, like a couple hours yeah. later and I was gone. And so my wife over the, so uh, she found out about, about the book by opening up a box and finding the book. And then she threw your name on it. And she threw me out of the house for two days. I was gone. <laughs> Oh, look out. I'm like, listen, I don't have like a secret family in another state. Like, aren't no, you, I'm not exactly. cheating on you. I just wrote a book. She was not thrilled with that. She's like, get out. But anyway, she's come around a little bit since since then. But yeah, that, that was that was my con contribution was like writing in the middle of the night and trying to uh, uh, do it all, all stealth mode. But um, 
Well, it's it's I, brilliant. It's what the what makes the world turn is people sparking conversation and promoting different types of conversation, and that's what you're doing. And yeah, it's something to be proud of. You're not going to get everyone going. Yeah, well, no one no. should agree with every single thing no, anyone says. Not. But the best thing is, is like I said, after I read it, I sat there, I digested it, I thought about things in different perspectives, which. If everyone starts doing that a bit more, we'll we'll start, you know, living in a happier world. Hopefully, I agree. I agree, and that and that was and and because that's the impact that some books have had on me, where I was just like, holy moly, like I got to go take a walk and just think about what I what I what I just read. And so there were there were times when yeah, I was that actually you've sort of made my my day just hearing that because there were times when I was hoping. Well, I hope somebody likes this. You know, I hope somebody sees this book. You know, I hope it doesn't just go out and 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 you know, is uh, I actually was secretly hoping Amazon would ban it because then I would have like a <laughs> great marketing price. campaign where I could say, yeah. "See, Amazon has banned this book. They hate it so much. They've done that to a lot of people that I know that have books." Oh, uh, so well, don't I, hold your breath. Yeah, Amazon yeah, could. It might. I'm sure. It might. It might, uh, it might happen. Well, so obviously it is available on Amazon. It's also available on yeah. Barnes and Noble as a as a ebook and as a paperback but you know one of the things that when 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 i was writing that i wanted to uh my my sort of the in my head the sales pitch for it was that it was a great book to give to somebody else like if you've gone as far as you can go with somebody as far as conversations whether it's a family member or like a friend close friend and they're just like i'm not interested like not you know stop with this um i think the book can help that people can buy it and give it to someone and then you say, listen, you don't have to read the whole thing. Just go to the chapter on, on how Vietnam started the Vietnam war. And if you have somebody that's like, Hey, wasn't your brother in Vietnam? And they're like, yeah. And they read that. And that one part sort of sticks with them. Then it opens them up to if Vietnam, you know, if the beginning of Vietnam was a big lie, then what else is a lie? And it sort of spreads from there. So people can, um, can, can, can get into it one section at a time. They don't have to feel obligated to read the whole thing. That actually reminds me, um, I wanted to tell you about a book. I'll just quickly tell you about an Australian author called War for the Asking. It's by okay. Michael Sexton. If you can't get it, I think you'd really like it. If you can't get it on Amazon, I'll send you my copy. Um, probably something for off the pod, but um, interesting story about um, the US's role with Al-Qaeda and Afghanistan and all that oh, cool. sort of stuff. And this was written quite a while ago so um if you don't if you can't get on amazon i'll send it through to you okay well charlie okay, thanks take... mate i've really appreciated you coming on hopefully thanks. we can keep this going throughout the uh throughout i go through the book and uh, yeah yeah, yeah. Keep discussing each topic so sure. thanks again mate have a lovely day hopefully it warms up over there which i'm yeah. guessing it won't over no. the next couple of months but um no. thanks mate i It'll... appreciate it thanks man we'll do it again Thank for you. sure cheers Bye.